Good morning. Our scripture today is from Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thank you, Sharon. Let's take our Bibles, if you have them, or your booklets from Colossians that we passed out early on when we started this study. And let's go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Colossians 2, 11 to 15. Before I dive into that, if I can uh, share a personal, um, something personal with you going on in the Shadrach family, I, I want you guys to know that another good man has bitten the dust. And on Friday, our firstborn son, Darden, popped the question to one Jordan Smalling, and she said, yes, I know. And, um, you know, they've known each other since middle school. Jordan, Mike, and uh, Michelle Smalling are at, at Brentwood. Um, they were at UT together. Um, we, we could not be more excited. Of course, our two girls, they're with us, and they had a little get-together tonight that was my head is in a different space today after that, those of you who've been through this, and, and so grateful. And I share that too because you all prayed for this young man, um, you know, some years ago when he had a motorcycle accident that quite frankly should have taken his life and uh, God spared him. And to be at this place is, um, man, so grateful, so, so grateful. So thanks for that and uh, rejoice with us. All right, now back to this passage which uh, Sharon read, it is, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a complicated passage, isn't it? She, he starts with circumcision, goes to baptism, and ends in triumph. And you go, what is all that, you know? Um, it is a continuation of what Rob started last week when he took verses eight through 10, and, and he summarized verses eight through 10 in this way. Don't exchange the fullness of life in Jesus that is yours for empty philosophies of this world. So now we're gonna pick up uh, the, the ongoing uh, thought of Paul that was started with that phrase. So it's, it's Paul saying, you know, that fullness in Jesus needs no supplement, okay? I'll say it one other way. All that you need, you have in Jesus. So it begs this question, and I want you to think about this, and this is not a trick question. This is, you know, sometimes I'll ask a question, it kind of be weird. This is, I guess I'm gonna ask it as direct as I can. If in Jesus we have all we need and require, when did we get all that we need and require in Jesus? Like, like when did we get all of that? When, when did you get it? Simpl it's, a, it's a pretty simple answer, when? 
at the moment of salvation. Let's not miss this, okay? So at the moment you believed, and for many in the room, you believed at some time in your past, at that moment, you got all of it, all of him, all that he is, and all that's required in this life, okay? So with that, I wanna read a statement I wrote out, um, which I was listening to someone who had, who had speaking in this passage and I've rephrased it in, in some words that, that I, more along how I would wanna say it. From the moment of your salvation to the moment of your death, God will not do anything greater, more profound, more life-giving, more miraculous, more significant, more life-transforming than all that he did at the moment of your salvation. What I'm trying to say is at the moment of your trust in Christ to the moment you leave this planet, it's, God is not gonna do anything greater, more profound than that which he did in that moment. Um, it's not that you don't experience, let's just say you don't ex- have, have deeper, richer experiences of Christ. There's more in that sense. Are you with me? There's more maturity and experience. But all you're experiencing is what you already have in Christ at the moment that we believe. And this means that our future experience of the fullness of Jesus is not gonna be because because something's added. It's gonna be because you and I mine the depths more fully of what is already ours. And it has some very practical ramifications. At least these two things I know are true. There's not a person in the room that doesn't need encouragement today. There's no one looking at me right now that doesn't have something going on in your life that's not right in this fallen world, that's not broken, that's not in need of of hope for for tomorrow, you know, to get through this day. So I know that's true. But the second thing is also true. If if you are someone who has put your trust in Christ, uh, then your hope to make it through today and tomorrow in light of this brokenness does not lie in something you're gonna get tomorrow or the next day. Your hope actually lies in drawing upon that which is already true. Reckoning what's already true to be true in our now. And it's only as we reckon these historic, if I can say realities true, that we experience genuine hope for today. So in the text, Paul gives us, if I can break it down in a a simple way, maybe making this what's a little complicated a little simpler to grasp, he's, just, he's gonna give us three things that happen the moment you believe. And it's grasping these things, these three things that will keep us from falling prey to, as he describes them here, elementary principles of the world and empty philosophy. Well, you gotta rest in these three. So I'm gonna say them over and over as I go through it. Uh, three things. The first one we're gonna pick up in verses 11 and 12. I'm gonna have you read it with me again. Just follow along in your Bibles. Here's the first thing Paul says is, is true of the person who puts their trust in Christ. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Did you know this, that no one gets into heaven who is not circumcised? 
That's what he's, you don't get to heaven unless you're circumcised. So that's gonna be an interesting invitation at the end of this message. I'm gonna say, if you are interested in being circumcised, we have people at each side, you know, of the stage come up to talk. Now, we gotta get this in our heads. So what is this circumcision he's talking about? Well, the first point I wanna make and the first point of an outline if you're writing this is just simply this. Paul says at the moment of salvation, we were circumcised. We were circumcised. Well, what do you mean we were circumcised? Well, let's go to the Old Testament and, and, and pick up Paul's thought. First thing we have to note in the text itself is about this circumcision with, with, with no, you know, no hilarity at all in the sense of what he's talking about. He says it's made without hands. He says it's the putting off of the body of flesh. And he says it's by the circumcision of Christ. So that gives us some clues about this particular circumcision. Let's go to the Old Testament and it'll add some, some uh, clarity to it, I think. In the Old Testament, you know, circumcision, very common practice, certainly the practice of Israel. It is the physical removing of the foreskin of the male penis. That's what circumcision is. Now, where, where did it come from? Why, why, is it, why is Israel doing it? Well, it is a sign God gave Abraham to say, look, this is the, the sign of being in, the co in my covenant that I've made with you. So I want you to give you a little historical timeline. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to this man, Abraham. Abraham's a, a pagan. I mean, Abraham's not a God worshiper. God makes a covenant with this man, Abraham, and says, through you, I'm gonna, make, I'm gonna give you a land, I'm gonna make a nation, and through you, the whole world's gonna be blessed. Jump ahead thousands of years, we understand, oh, that means, Abraham, we, we now know Abraham, the nation of Israel is, uh, the land is Abraham's, the nation of Israel is the people that were produced through Abraham, and through the nation of Israel, we receive a savior named Jesus who blesses the whole world. That's the Abrahamic covenant. So that's Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, um, God says, uh, uh, it, the, the scripture says that Abraham believed God and God reckoned that to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham put his faith in God and God declared Abraham righteous because he put his faith in God. See, Abraham's saved by faith, okay? It's then in chapter 17 that God says, now Abraham, he repeats the covenant and says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to circumcise every eight-year-old boy and I want you to circumcise every, every man of the tribe of Israel. And so they were circumcised. Now, as that flesh is removed, please remember this. That flesh being removed did not make a Jew righteous. It didn't make Abraham righteous. Uh, it, it was just the males because in that context and culture, that which was done to the male was done to the whole family, was done to the whole tribes. That's why women, you know, it's, it's circumcision of the males. But notice the timeline I gave you. Abraham is declared righteous in Genesis 15 by faith in God. He's declared righteous by faith. And then comes circumcision. So see, circumcision has nothing to do with righteousness other than this. In the same way that the flesh is gonna be removed from the male organ, everyone needs, their, needs flesh removed from their heart. That was the picture. Now, now, I'm not saying they got it immediately, but we'll get it. It's like the physical circumcision was pointing to their need for righteousness by a removal of the flesh, so to speak. 
Now, the picture that this is giving is, uh, is fascinating when we put these things together. Listen to what God says in Deuteronomy 10, 16. He commands them and says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So, so physical circumcision, get this, is pointing to the need for spiritual circumcision. For a circumcision, a removal of sin from the heart. What's the heart? It's the essence of who we are, thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices united. So, so the physical circumcision is pointing to you. Everyone who's circumcised, you're, you're reminded constantly, we need the removal of sin from our life, from our heart. And then God commands it. And then note Deuteronomy 36, a wonderful promise. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Commands it. And then he says, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? So that, this reminds you of Jesus's words, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. Wow. Now, I, I wanna you know, connect this picture and say what Paul is saying here in this passage about circumcision. He's saying God fulfilled what he promised in Deuteronomy. I'm gonna remove the sin from your heart. He fulfilled it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what Colossians is telling us. When Jesus died on the cross, he removed the, the flesh from, from, from the hearts of all who would trust in him. This is, this is a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision made without hands. It's a circumcision you can't do and no, no one can do to you. It's the work of, of God, and y'all, it's nothing less than the promise of the new covenant. Think of the new covenant that was promised in Ezekiel 36, 26. God said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. See, that's, what, that's what's happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If the, Colossians, if the Colossians were being tempted by false teachers who said, oh, you've put your faith in Jesus? Great, have you been circumcised? You're a Gentile. Well, Paul's saying to them, no, the, the, the physical act of circumcision was pointing to a greater spiritual reality. And when the greater spiritual reality has come, which it has come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, you no longer need the physical picture because it's been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Paul writes this in Romans 6, 6. This is the New Living Translation. We know that our old sinful selves, okay? This is all that we were before trusting Christ the, the, the sin that we were, you know, was crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. I wanna visualize this for you with a really simple illustration. Um, when we are lost, when we don't know Christ, uh, our hearts, all the core of who we are, 
it's sin, y'all. It's sin-saturated. Our hearts are dark. We need a spiritual removal, a circumcision of the heart, and we can't, how do you circumcise your heart? You can't. God does, though, in Jesus. In Christ, our, all that we were before we trusted Christ is removed. See, the removal of the flesh. And so our hearts, in other words, all that we were before trusting Christ is nailed to the cross. And so I'm putting this up here visually for us that this might be in front of us. Who you were in your fallenness, Paul says, was nailed to the cross. Now you go, well, wait, if all I was was nailed to the cross, why do I still sin? Well, we're gonna talk more about that in Colossians, so we'll have to hold it, but I will remind you of this. The power, or I'll say that, our bondage, we were slaves to sin, has been broken by the cross. So we're no longer a slave to sin. Oh, but the, the principle of sin remains as long as we're in these bodies. It's not that our flesh is bad, it's just this principle of bentness towards sin remains and so we continue to sin. We'll talk more about that in some coming passages. Here's here's what I want you to note in terms of principle. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are no longer who you were. That's when Paul says, you know, all things are made new, new creation. How's it made new? Well, who you were was nailed to the cross. It was you know, snipped away spiritually, so to speak. It was removed and nailed to the cross. Now, that's the circumcision, but then he mentions baptism. And so you go from verse 11 to 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism. Here's the question. Is he describing water baptism? You know, that in other words, when you were buried with Christ in the water and raised to walk in Jesus' life, which is the words we say, is he talking about water baptism here? I will tell you this, the scholars, commentators, you know, I, which I'm neither one of those, they are divided on this. And, and I don't think we do damage to the text whichever way you go per se, but my leaning is that he's not talking about water baptism here. He's talking about spirit baptism. What do you mean he's talking about spirit baptism? Well, the, the, the scriptures tell us when we place our faith in Christ, this, we are, the spirit baptizes us, and think of the word baptize. Yes, it means to dip, but it also has the meaning of being identified with. And so when you and I trust Christ, put our faith in Christ, we are identified with and placed into the body of Christ. And Christ dwells in us, okay? That's spirit baptism. It happens at the moment of salvation. I wanna suggest that's what he's describing here. He has just talked about this removal of the flesh. And now he's talking about the uniting of of who you are You are bodily connected to Jesus. It's not like you're a tool in a toolbox. I said that two weeks ago. It's that you're like an arm connected to me. You are organically placed into and identified with the person of Christ, which means, this this is so fundamental, that when we put our trust in Christ, God declares as true and real that you were co-crucified, co-buried, and co-risen with Jesus. Now you go, well, wait, I wasn't even alive then. No, you weren't. 
But the moment you trust that Jesus did that for you, God declares that you were in Jesus Christ, which is why Paul says, think about Galatians 2, uh, 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And you go, well, no, you weren't, Paul, because you're writing this. You were, no, spiritually, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. The life which I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let's go here. At the moment of belief, you were circumcised, men and women. Who you were before Christ was removed, your heart. It was circumcised heart and that was nailed to the cross. Now there's a second thing we'll go to. It's verses 13 and 14. Notice he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's the second thing that happens the moment you believe, and I know you know this, but we need to be reminded. We are forgiven. The moment of belief, we are forgiven of all our sin and trespasses. You know, before a person comes to faith in Jesus, the Bible's clear, Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. This is the problem. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Dead people uh, don't stand a chance. So our understanding of salvation from the scripture is that we, uh, a person who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't, hasn't put their trust in Christ, is in a, quite frankly, hopeless position. Uh, you leave a dead person and stand back and watch and just wait for something to happen and let me tell you what's gonna happen. Nothing. A dead person remains dead, incapable of responding, of seeing the truth. And Paul says in Corinthians that we can't, a, a, a lost person can't discern truth because we're dead, we're separated. We can do nothing to save ourselves. And therefore, salvation is not that, you know, no one in the room who's trusted Christ can say, well, I'm saved because I figured it out. No, you were dead. How did you figure it out when you were dead? You can't say, well, I'm just smarter than my cousin who doesn't know Jesus. No, you're not. We're all dead without hope unless the one who is alive and can give life puts life in us. And so our understanding of salvation is it's all of God. Yes, we put our faith in Christ, but that faith is even a gift. So God opens the eyes of a dead person, puts life in them, and, and, and that life is the life that opens their eyes to believe the gospel. We believe the gospel and we're saved. But salvation is of God from beginning to end. This is why we say salvation is of grace. And you go, well then, why, why am I saved and not this person? This is in God's sovereignty. He opened your eyes and you believed. He's not yet opened that person's eyes, but our responsibility is to tell that lost person, here's the good news and pray. God opens their eyes to faith. The problem is our sin and trespasses. It's, it's our moral, you know, we violate God's laws. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
So we, we have an IOU that we owe God and literally this word, record of debt here, it, it, is, it is, for the original audience, they could have read it, you had an IOU because it's very personal. It's this picture of a, of a, of a scroll that's, that's written out in your own hand. I owe this, I owe this, I owe this, I owe this, I owe this. And then it's your own signature at the bottom and you give it to the person you owe. That's what he's describing. You, you have a record of debt that you owe God. The payment, okay, the only satisfactory payment is death because the, the wage of sin is death. Now think about this. We have two options. Every person on the planet has two options. You can, you can pay your own penalty, which I'm gonna show you in a moment, you don't fully pay, or you can accept that Jesus paid that wage for you. Now here's what happens. All of us die physically, we know that. But the death that we fear and the death we ought to fear is the second death, and that is that when our souls are separated from our bodies, that's called physical death, then our soul, our heart, that which lives forever, is it gonna be with God forever or apart from God forever? Well, if you don't trust Christ when you die, then you're saying, well, I'm gonna pay my own debt. Well, you are gonna pay your debt, but do you know how long you're gonna pay it? Guess, I mean, not guess, what's the Bible say? How long will you pay that debt? You have to pay it forever. That's separation from God forever in hell. Or in this life, if your eyes are opened and you go, wait, oh, so, so Jesus... He paid the penalty. He suffered separation from God. He was God, therefore he could satisfy the eternal nature of the punishment. And he rose from the grave and only, the only reason he could rise from the grave is if he had no sin of his own, which tells us God was satisfied and the Bible says that God was satisfied with the payment Jesus paid, Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus lives today, sits at the right hand of the Father and says to you and I, anyone who believes that what I did, I did for them, look, I've paid the penalty. <laughs> That's good news, which is what gospel means. I want you to picture it this way, maybe. Again, just a, a, a simple illustration. So I've got these two scrolls, you could call them, you know what it is, it's adding paper. Um, but this would have been what the, this would have been what the, he had them. Paul had them picturing was these scrolls, and just imagine written on these. Just imagine what's written on, on, on these two scrolls is is every all of my sin, every thought. Added. Now I, I thought about it, and I thought I think two scrolls will do. Some of you might need twelve. I don't know or more. Uh, the truth is, I, I wouldn't be able to hold the number of these that are required for my sin. But the, but the picture remains nonetheless that um, in Christ Jesus, when he died on the cross, Paul says he took this, this which is against it. This is my IOU before God. And he took it all. And here's the thing, like I could, you know, I could take a thousand million of these. And the truth is, however many there are, Paul says these these were nailed to the cross. What, what was nailed to the cross? All of my sin, all, my, all the, you know, all that I owed God. Now, I nailed the flesh, so to speak, the, 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 all that we were before Christ, I nailed it 
there and I nailed this record of debt. I nailed them in a very specific place on the cross. Again, not a trick question. Why did I nail those nails where I nailed them on that cross? Yeah, yeah, because this is what I, I don't want us to miss and I want you to see. Those things weren't nailed to wood. Um, a cross is just it's two pieces of wood. The point is they were nailed to a person. See, so it's almost like we nailed it to Jesus. That's what happened. And Paul makes that clear, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Peter picks up on the same thought, 1 Peter 2, 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So, so all that we were before we trusted Christ in our fallenness that needed to be removed so that we could have a new heart became Jesus. Every sin, past, present, future, every violation of God's law from the, the tiniest thought to the vilest action became Jesus. It's not just like it's nailed to a wood. It became Jesus that he might make that payment for us, canceling, setting aside, and removing our sin, men and women. It's, it, it, does, that does, this, it does no longer exist. It's been paid for on the cross. We were circumcised. We were forgiven. And third, at the moment of salvation, we were declared victorious. Now, note verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him can be in the cross. So in this contest, it seems best to, to see these rulers and authorities as spiritual rulers and authorities. Satan and his demons that are behind, you know, you know, if, if a, if a, physical king does something, what's behind him is the spiritual rulers and authorities, of course, but we're talking about these spiritual rulers and authorities. Um, when he speaks of triumphing over them in the cross, the picture that the original readers would get is a very vivid and real picture. In the same way, when I say to you, I want you to picture a ticker tape parade in New York. You know, you go, oh, I can see that. I can see the line. I can see they would have a picture. What's the picture they would have? It would be this. Uh, in, in antiquity, when uh, Rome conquered a country, when a general was off fighting for years, the, the people of Rome didn't know, how's it going? Did we win? Did we lose? Did we gain more ground? Did we conquer the bad guys? Well, when they did conquer, the, uh, the emperor would put a parade on for that general. And it would go for weeks. And again, this, you could read, this is in historic, historical records. Uh, what would happen first would be the first part of the parade would be all these chariots and wagons loaded with spoil. So can you imagine they've gone and conquered eight kingdoms somewhere. They bring all the stuff back, the gold, the jewelries, the whatever it may be. They pile it all up and they run it through the city so that the whole city can see we got all their stuff. And then behind that would come the, king, the, the general. And so the general in all the pomp and decor, of course, 
would come through. How do you know when? It, how do you know a general was on the battlefield versus the, you know, the 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 guy in the you know with just the the, the gun and not ruling anything? Well, by his dress. And so the, the general would be dressed in pomp and circumstance, you see. And then he would be coming through on the parade in front of him, all the spoils. And the third part would be behind him. And behind that general would come the rulers and authorities of all these kingdoms that he conquered. And note it says he disarmed them. It means he disrobed them. The general is in his pomp and circumstance. But I want to tell you, the rulers and authorities that got conquered, their clothes are, their clothes are off of them. They're, they're, they're walking beaten, bedraggled, behind. Why? Because they've been beat. And it shows the whole city, all of Rome, we won. We're victorious. So that's what they would see when Jesus, Jesus says, no, Jesus disrobed them and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. Well, what does that mean? It means Jesus turned it upside down. Satan and his minions behind the crucifixion, nailing Jesus to the cross, they declared victory. We beat him, we won, right? Jesus says, no, in his death, he defeats death. I mean, Jesus just flips it. Look, they think Jesus is the one being dragged, beaten, disrobed. No, he's dragging them beaten and disrobed, so to speak. He defeats death by his death. Satan's greatest tool, his greatest power to cast fear, death because Jesus died, was buried and rose again, and in Jesus we died, buried and rise again, death no longer has its sting, Paul says, so to speak. Death, listen, for the Christian death, I don't, I don't wanna die. I, I'm not per se looking forward to death, you know what it means, because it means what we lose, but please understand for the Christian, death is a step from dying into life forever. It's a step from Life in a broken, fallen world and body into life eternal forever as it was meant to be. And so that's where, you know, as, a Christ, as Christians we say, death has no, doesn't have its sting in that way. So Jesus, by the cross, has conquered all spiritual rulers and authorities. We've been declared, we win, is the, is the point. We're victorious, um, I wish Rob Sweet were here. Of course, he's teaching at Brentwood, but um, I, I would want him to hear this because I want to remind him of it. This is, this is a way to think about the Christian life. And some of you, some of you are not gonna like this, but you'll get the point I'm making. October 3rd, 2016, University of Tennessee was losing to Georgia, 34 to 31. Last play of the game, Hail Mary. Tennessee catches it. Tennessee beats Georgia. We won! You know, that's me, you know. Now, do you know where I was on that day? I was in Knoxville. Not at the game. I was at a wedding. Are you kidding me? I was a, who plans a wedding on the Georgia-Tennessee game? Well, I was at a wedding and uh, missed the game. But I had it taped. So that week, I came home and I watched that game. And I'm telling you, every time we got behind, I just smiled. I just thought, this is awesome. 
It's just going to make it sweeter because they think they win. But we win, you know, is my, my um, feeling. And so it is appropriate for you and I as believers to know that in the midst of life when we're losing, and we do lose battles, there's pain in this life. There's hurt. This stuff doesn't go as it was made to go. Paul is saying, we win. Do you understand? You win. We win. I've already won. It's not like there's the game is yet to be played, y'all, and we're not sure who wins. I'm telling you, the game is over. We win. Now we live in this life and in this time and this in-between when it feels like we don't. And Paul says, if you've placed your faith in Christ, do you understand the moment you believed? Do you understand that this moment in the past when you believed, <laughs> you were circumcised, you were forgiven, and, and you win, you win based on the historical reality of the cross and our trust in what Christ did on that cross. Which makes it so appropriate that as we gather each week, we come to that very tangible expression of the cross, which is the table. And I'm gonna invite the ushers if they would go ahead now and, and begin passing out the elements for the table of Christ, the bread and the cup representing his body and his blood poured out for us. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, please take the bread and cup and celebrate this table. Let's acknowledge it, we will together. Hold the bread and cup, please, and uh, don't, don't take it. Take, we'll take it together in just a moment. But I want to offer or ask you to consider two things uh, as you hold the bread and cup in these moments. We don't wanna look at a passage ever and go, hey, I understand it now, this is awesome. We have to look at a passage and go, I understand it now. And what does it require of me? And what does it mean then for me to trust what it says? What's the step of faith? If you have never placed your faith in Christ, then the step of faith is believe. Put your faith in Christ. And may I say to you, if, um, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, but you're here, and listen, you're here for a reason. I, I didn't invite you, but you came. And, and if, it, if it even is crossing your mind that this is beginning to make sense, can I say to you, it would not make sense to you unless God was at work right now opening your eyes. So, so it's not like you can say, well, God never opened my eyes. Well, if it's making sense, then he's opening your eyes. And may I invite you, believe. Tell God you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again. He did it for you. Put your trust in Jesus in this moment. And for those in the room who've trusted Christ, so you know, if you're, you, you know, this is now, and if there's a point in your life back here where you trusted Christ, this is, this is the most important thing in life. What has Paul said here that you need to reckon as true anew right now? In other words, holding that bread and cup, what, what's true of what Jesus did for you on the cross that remains your hope right now? And put your trust, it's not like you're being saved again. No, it's being sanctified. It's growing to trust Christ more and more in the difficulties and challenges and hardships of life, in the joys of life. What would it mean for you?
to reckon as true, I am forgiven. I was circumcised by Christ in the cross and in Christ I win. I'll let you talk to God about that in these moments.